I'm going to tell you a little story. Not long ago, my mom started scanning um, the photographs from when we were children. Um, now, if you're under the age of 30, you don't know what a photo album is, probably. Um, we have photo albums at my house. They've been in boxes for 10 years, um, if not even longer. Does anybody still have photo albums that they look at? I see, maybe I'm a terrible person. Um, anyway, my mom started scanning these photographs from when I was a child, and, um, and uh, particularly recently, she sent um, over the iPhone, she sent a, an album of photographs from a, a family vacation back in 1985. I think I was nine years old, and uh, we were living in Western Australia, and we normally lived in Sydney, which is the East Coast. We're on the West Coast. The West Coast is wild and undeveloped. And in 1985, it was 30 years less developed than it even is now. And um, so we took this road trip up the West Coast of uh, Western Australia. We drove from Perth, where we lived, all the way up to Exmouth, almost 1,000 miles um, in the wild coastline. Um, and uh, where we arrived, Exmouth is the place where Ningaloo Reef is, um, the place where you swim with the whale sharks. Um, and so this was an amazing kid, uh, amazing adventure as a child. Um, you know, there was no Instagram. We only had terrible cameras. Um, uh, on that western coast, there wasn't even a resort at the time. So we camped out on remote beaches. And, um, you know, we got our car stuck in sand. And we had a car that overheated. And we flipped our camper trailer. Um, kind of quite a lot of adventures. But um, we also spent our days swimming and surfing and snorkeling and, and, um, and fishing and, and eating what we caught. It was really this amazing vacation. And one of the things that, um, that takes me back to that vacation is every time I smell reef tan oil, you know those little brown bottles, it's like coconut oil. I don't actually think it, it protects you from the sun. I think it just bastes you like a turkey. Um, <laughs> but uh, also, um, the other thing that takes me back is a, a particular song that seemed to always be on the radio. Um, points to anybody who remembers this song. It was Life in a Northern Town by the Dream Academy. Um, what you'd remember is the line in the middle where it goes, Heya, ma, 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 heya. You remember that one? And I could sing it for you, but you guys can do it afterwards. And um, funnily enough, when Joe and I were first married, we were traveling through Europe for a couple of months, and that song was on the radio again 10 or 15 years afterwards, but as a dance remix. Maybe it's just my song, Heya, ma, ma, ma. Um, my brother actually told me yesterday that it's a very depressing song about very depressing towns. I thought, I just like the tune. And listen to the words. Um, but that happens with songs, doesn't it? You know, songs can, um, they become the soundtrack to significant periods of your life. Um, a song can transport you back in time, and it can transport you back to a place, and it can transport you back to a mood or a memory. And uh, this summer, we're looking at the Psalms as the soundtrack that Jesus listened to, um, the songs of Jesus, um, the songs that Jesus would have known and recited, um, songs that taught him about God, and songs that taught him about himself, um, songs that would have fueled Jesus' prayers. Um, that's our soundtrack for this summer here at church, um, and a soundtrack that I hope fuels our prayers as well, um, just um, as we take them to heart like Jesus did. Um, so why don't we pray that God would teach us this summer as we open the Psalms together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Psalms, uh, for these songs that your people have been singing for thousands of years. Uh, teach us your songs and use them to sustain us in all seasons of life. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, we are starting our new sermon series today with Psalm 2. Um, I'm saving up Psalm 1 for another day, just so you know. Um, now, normally, um, 
we, we often work our way through books of the Bible chapter at a time here at Yonville Community Church. Um, but the Psalms doesn't kind of really work like that. It doesn't build a story chapter by chapter. Um, it's more like an anthology of poetry um, written by different authors. And uh, I just want to tell you a little bit about the book of Psalms before we begin. Um, within the book of Psalms, you can break it down into five little books. And if you had a paper Bible, you'd see that there's book one, two, three, four, and five. And um, the Psalms, as you can see on your page, they're written like poetry. Uh, they're written like song words. You can see them on the page like that. Um, but it's worth noting that these were originally written a very long time ago. Um, they're originally written in the Hebrew language um, during the Old Testament time, so that's before Jesus. Um, and some of the Psalms are very old. Um, about half the Psalms, uh, at least 73 out of 150, um, are attributed to King David. The King David wrote them. Well, he was the king in about 1000 BC. So these are very old songs, are very old Psalms, very old poems. Um, and traditionally, the Psalms have been part of the church's worship. And people recited them, people learnt them. Uh, in the olden days, they were probably songs. Some of them say, to the tune of this or that. Um, we don't know those tunes anymore. They've been lost in history. Um, and so we do lose a little bit um, out of the Psalms that, that they're not musical. Uh, we also lose some other parts a little bit. Um, they were originally written in Hebrew a very long time ago, and they've been translated into English. And so you lose a little bit of the poetic element as well. Um, there's some little bits of poetry that the translators try to put in, but there's some little elements we miss. But um, despite all of that um, distance and time and culture to separate us from the original writers, the, um, what we have in common with the Psalms is the sentiments that they portray. Um, the Psalms have sometimes been called the prayer book of the Old Testament. Um, they record the words of the saints of old as they prayed, as they called out to God in every season of life. And their prayers teach us how we ought to call out to God in every season of life too. So I hope this sermon series helps us all to pray more. Uh, and I'm going to pray using this psalm after the sermon today. But uh, for now, let's jump into Psalm 2. Reading at verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. We live in a world of division, um, a world of conflict, a world where nations conspire and, and kings and rulers, they rise up against one another. Um, and all throughout history, wars have raged uh, over territory and over power and over politics and all kinds of other reasons. Um, division seems to be our default stance as humans. But in Psalm 2, there's a great surprise about the divisiveness of humans. Um, do you see it there in verse 2? So the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together. They don't rise up against each other. They rise up against a common enemy, against the Lord and against his anointed. So despite all of their enmity towards one another, Psalm 2 teaches us that the rulers of this world have an even greater enemy, a greater perceived enemy, an enemy they hate so much they'll cease fire against one another and conspire together against this common enemy, which of course is there in verse 2. It's the Lord and his anointed. Uh, context, Bible scholars believe that this psalm was probably um, written as, originally as a coronation psalm. Um, that is a kind of um, a, a psalm that we read at the coronation or the installation of a king. Um, and uh, probably not David. We think it's post-David. 
But it makes sense then to imagine that the other kings and rulers of nearby countries would seek to destroy um, this anointed king of the Lord. And so um, when you attack the king, it's the same as attacking the Lord. And so from a historical earthly perspective, you could sort of imagine that context. But, but when you look more closely, there's a very global um, aspect to this attack on the Lord and his anointed. Um, it's the nations, line one, and the people, line two, and the kings of the earth, line three, and, and the rulers, they all conspire and plot and rise up, and they band together against God and his anointed one. Um, anointing was, uh, was a ritual to mark God's approval of the kings of Israel. Consecrated oil would be poured, uh, poured from a horn um, onto the king's head by a representative of God, usually a prophet, and, and then that king would be called the anointed. And in Hebrew, that word for anointed is Mashiach, um, in English, Messiah, uh, in Greek, Christos, or Christ. And so you can see why this psalm had special meaning for Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Um, and certainly we see a fulfillment during Jesus' lifetime. Um, powers and authorities conspired and plotted to have Jesus killed. And when we read verse 3, we see the reason why the nations and people rise up against God together. They say, let us break their chains and let us throw off their shackles. Um, Psalm 2 teaches us a profound truth about humanity. Um, as humans, we have this perception that God wants to put us in chains, and um, that God wants to put us in shackles, um, this image of slavery or incarceration. And the worldly perception is that God wants to control us, um, that he wants to control our actions, and he wants to control our thoughts, and he wants to put limitations on what we can do and, and what we can't do. He wants, to, he wants to shackle us and limit our freedom. He wants to stop me from doing the things that I want to do. Um, have you ever had that thought? I was doing the Alpha course a few years ago, and there was a young guy in his 20s, and, um, and he said something just like that. He said, why does God care who I sleep with? You know, why does God care if I get drunk? Um, I like the idea of Jesus, he said, but I don't want him to tell me what to do. Uh, he didn't actually stay in the course long after that. And I, and I, I want to, well, I think it was stuck in that perception. And, you know, I, I, I want to say I think it's because he was part of the younger generation. But actually, that's not the problem. The problem goes back further, um, all the way back, in fact, to Adam and Eve, to our very first parents. Um, because they didn't want God to tell them what to do. They didn't want God to tell them you can't eat this. They did what they wanted to do. And so it turns out it's a fundamentally human response to, uh, to God to want to break the chains and to, and to throw off the shackles. And I wonder if you feel that in your own experience. I, I know I do. Because we want to be kings and we want to be rulers of our own lives. And we rebel against anybody who wants to take away our rights and our freedoms. Uh, even if it's God himself. I mean, after all, what would God know about what's good for us? <laughs> I think he knows probably something. So that's the first stanza, the desire for freedom. I got three Ds, by the way, three D um, stanzas. The second one is declaration of God, um, the declaration that God makes. Um, for all of the plotting and conspiring of the nations and the people against God, did you notice that the last two words in verse 1? The last two words in verse 1 say, in vain. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? This psalm, which is situated right at the beginning of the book of Psalms, uh, it's meant to teach us a fundamental truth about God, a, a truth that underpins everything else we read in the Psalms. Um, and in fact, a truth that underpins every challenge to God's authority in this world. Verse 4, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. 
The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger. And he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. The the foundational truth of these verses is that God is the one enthroned in heaven. God sits on the only throne that matters. There are not many gods on many thrones, each ruling over their own sections of the earth and their own constituents. No, this verse makes a truth claim. It makes a truth claim that God is the only one, the one, it says. I think that's why the, the, the authors have put it in a capital O for the one. He's the one who rules and reigns in creation. And, and when challenges to authority comes, they pose no threat to him at all. Absolutely no threat. Um, I had a friend who worked in juvenile justice. And um, he worked in a home for boys with behavioral issues. And he told me that he was regularly physically assaulted by the boys. And, um, and I was imagining these, you know, massive, big-armed teenage boys swinging and punching. Um, he laughed. Um, he said, actually, they're all under 12. And so what happens is um, these boys would come out swinging, and the guards would basically just wrap them up in a hug and just prevent them. They, they couldn't. They were too little. And so the guards were never hurt, but they had to have the boys charged with assault so that they would understand the consequences of their actions. It was all part of preventing further harm for them down the way. And I think in a way God laughs at the puny efforts of the world leaders who conspire against him. Even join together the kings of this world are no match for the king that God installs on his holy mountain, on Zion. Ultimately those kings will understand the consequences of their rebellion. And so who is the king that God installs on Zion? Uh, Well that becomes clear in verse 7. The psalmist says in verse 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possession, you will break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Um, Historically, King David was the first great king over Israel. Um, He was actually the second. Um, Saul was a bit of a dud. But um, when David was king, Saul we kind of don't count. David was the good guy. But when David was the king, um, God spoke to David through the prophet Nathaniel and uh, uh, Nathan. He made this incredible promise to David that sounds a lot like what we get in Psalm 2. Um, he promised that David's offspring uh, would have a throne that lasted forever, a kingdom and a throne that lasted forever, and they'd be, they'd be God's son. God would be their father and they would be his son. Sounds a lot like Psalm 2, doesn't it? Um, but historically, David's offspring were actually terrible kings. Um, about half of them at least, were, were just terrible. And they didn't make the nations their inheritance. Um, instead, in the centuries before Jesus' birth, um, they were conquered, and they themselves were the ones who got spread out to the ends of the earth. Um, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the, the Greeks and eventually the Romans, they, they tormented God's people and they subjugated God's people. And God's people must have wondered, well, how is Psalm 2 going to come true? And that is until the Messiah was born. And the anointed one that God's people have been waiting for for centuries. And that's why it was so significant at Jesus' baptism that God speaks to him from heaven. He says, this is my son whom I love. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 2. And in that same ceremony, Jesus was anointed, not by, uh, not by a prophet, but instead by the Holy Spirit, which descended on him like a dove. And it confirmed God's choice of Jesus as his anointed king. And so I imagine this psalm is the soundtrack that was playing in Jesus' head on that day of his baptism, on the day that the, the Spirit came down, and probably in the minds of the disciples too. 
And that's why I think it must have been so shocking for the disciples to see Jesus crucified. The Gospels are very clear about the conspiracy of the religious leaders and, and the Roman governor to have Jesus killed. It must have looked like everything was lost and that God wasn't in control and that his anointed was unable to match the power of the kings of this world. See, the cross looks like the defeat of God. But do you remember the last two words in verse 1? In vain. See, any attempt, any attempt to rebel against God, it's ultimately, it's ultimately in vain. You can try, but it's laughable to God. You know, for all of their ability to terrify us, the powers of this world are puny and pathetic and pitiful compared to the power of God and His sovereign rule. Not even death can stop God. Not even death can stop God. And God showed that when Jesus rose from the tomb on the third day. And from that day to this, Jesus has been expanding his kingdom to the ends of the earth and making the nations his inheritance. And the Bible tells us that one day Jesus will return um, in power, in the guise of a king, as a great warrior. And, and the Bible says that on that day, many peoples of the world will rise up and conspire and, and fight against him. They'll take on the Lord and his anointed, but their efforts will be in vain. Their power will be removed and they'll be destroyed. And Jesus will establish his throne forever and ever. See, Psalm 2, it finds its ultimate fulfillment in a time that's still to come. And that's a good thing because it means that we can decide which side of history we want to stand on. And that's the third and final stanza, um, decision. The psalm ends in verse 10 with a decision that each of us needs to make. Verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he'll be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Verse 10 teaches us to be wise and to be warned because rebellion against God is, is not just for world leaders. It's an attitude that goes right back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And each of us needs to decide who's going to be the sovereign in our life Verse 11, will we serve the Lord or will we serve our own interests? Will we celebrate his rule or will we celebrate our own independence? See, verse 12 reminds us what the destiny is for everybody who does not honor the son. Kiss his son, verse 12 says, or he'll be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. Your path will lead to your destruction. Um, I agonized over what to say about God's anger um, in this Psalm, do you notice it comes up in verse 5 and verse 12? And the same, his wrath comes up in 5 and 12. And I agonize because I think so many of us want to believe that God is this great grandfather in the sky, this, this kind of gentle, cardigan-wearing grandfather who just loves everybody and, and would never judge. Or maybe he's like a kind of a Labrador, and he just wags his tail and he's just happy. But the problem with a God like that is that heaven would be like earth is right now wouldn't it? A place full of tyrants and, and rulers who conspire and plot and do whatever they want and, and get away with murder. And I don't want to go to a heaven like that. It would be anarchy, literally anarchy. They'd be rebelling against the king. And God wouldn't be a good God because he would allow injustice to continue. And so the anger of God that the Bible speaks about, it's not capricious or vindictive or disproportionate. It's actually God's measured and God's justified response to everything that would ruin the kingdom that he's building. 
And even though the passage warns us in verse 12 that God's wrath might flare up in a moment, actually the reality is that God has yet to enact his final judgment. He's been patient for more than 2,000 years, giving people time to, to wise up and to be warned. He's been patient for all of that time, giving the church time to take the hope of Jesus to the ends of the earth, just like Jesus commanded us to do. That's what we're doing here at Yonville Community Church. We're taking the gospel to the ends of Yonville and, and the Napa Valley and, and even further and beyond. We're pleading with people to kiss God's son, to, to honor him in their lives and to find their life in him. Because that's how the psalm ends. Did you see the last line? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. A life with Jesus is a life of blessing. It's not a life of shackles and chains. Um, it's actually a life where we find true freedom. But that's a psalm for another day. It leaves us with that decision to make. Which side of history will we stand on? Will we stand with the rulers? Or will we stand with Jesus and find our refuge? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this message from Psalm 2, um, the soundtrack that Jesus must have had in his mind as he, as he walked as your king, as he walked as your ruler, as he walked as the anointed one. Father, help us to remember that you are the sovereign. You are the one enthroned in heaven. Help us to trust in your sovereign rule when the, uh, the powers of this world terrify us. Father, help us rather to turn to you and trust that one day you will end all injustices. Help us to trust that deeply um, when we ourselves want to throw off your shackles, Father, show us what freedom looks like, a life in Jesus Christ. We pray that each of us would find peace and comfort and faith and forgiveness and life in him this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.